following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Earlier this year, uh, there was a pitcher for the Masters College baseball team who achieved the rare feat of pitching a perfect game. That means that no batter reached base for the entire game, 27 consecutive outs. It's something that is extremely rare. In fact, it had never happened before at the Masters College. And I watched a a clip of this story about that game earlier this week, and and it was uh, the, the young man whose name was Jason, the pitcher. He told of how the day was special to him because his dad was able to be there to see it. And it turns out I know his dad. And when I had heard that he was able to see his son's amazing achievement, I was extremely happy for him, just thinking how what a joy that must have been to see his son do that. And we should rejoice when others experience good and rejoice, right? I think there's even a Bible verse that talks about that. Like going to somebody's birthday party or a retirement dinner or a special event. You can be happy for the person being honored, right? Even though it's not your party. It's not your celebration. I mean, when you get an invitation to a wedding, you don't say, well, I'm not in the wedding, so why bother going? Or if you're at somebody's party, you don't say, well, it's not a party for me, so why should I be excited about this? I mean, what would we think about such a person? And yet how often this kind of thinking exists for New Testament believers when we come across prophecies regarding Israel. The prevailing attitude seems to be, why should I care about their future? Why should I be excited about what is being said to them? It doesn't apply to me. Or sometimes we think that. Sometimes we might think because we don't relate to them, it just doesn't seem worth the effort to try to figure out what these prophecies mean and and how they apply to us and how they might be important to the people of God. For many of us, they're just Old Testament history. Promises for a group of people, a society that I don't really know much about, that I have trouble identifying with. And because of that, it can be tempting to just hurry through and run past the Old Testament prophets in your Bible reading or in your study. Or to treat them as just some historical information that does not seem to have much application. Again, if I can't get much out of it, why bother? And I bring this up because, again, we find ourselves in a passage that focuses on Israel and God's plans for her in the future. But just as I can rejoice at Jason's dad being able to see his son pitch a perfect game, or or just as we can rejoice at someone's party when we see the, the honor being bestowed on them and the enjoyment that they are gaining from that, or just that we can be happy for a couple that is getting married, so too we can rejoice in the promises of future blessings for God's people Israel. Can we not? Can we not rejoice in what God does for others? As our mighty God works and as He carries out these promises, as we see His faithfulness, as we see His compassion, as we see His power, as we see Him work among those who need help, can we not rejoice in that and see our God at work? And more than that, we should rejoice at what we see about God and about Him as 
we study these Old Testament prophets. And today, as we look at God's promises to Israel through the prophet Zechariah, we have an opportunity to rejoice not only in what God has in store for His people, Israel, we have an opportunity to rejoice in seeing our great God at work. And we have an opportunity to rejoice in seeing how much Christ deeply cares for His people and how much He cares for us. A couple weeks ago, we took a look at the first of eight visions that Zechariah had that he'd received one night, visions that were given to him so that he could share them with God's people and encourage them to focus their worship on God and to focus their efforts in rebuilding his temple in Jerusalem. And if you remember that first vision from Zechariah chapter 1, we saw the, the angel of the Lord, who we learned is none other than Jesus Christ himself before the incarnation. And we saw Christ interceding on behalf of Israel and his care for them and his desire that God would show compassion on this people who had been oppressed and put into exile and and put under the thumb of these pagan empires. He wanted God to show them compassion for all they had suffered. And so to begin this morning, I want to start at the end of that first vision and the summary statement that God gave in response to Christ's intercession. So if you would please stand, we'll begin reading in chapter 1 of verse 14 of chapter 1, the conclusion of this vision. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, this was the interpreting angel who was with Zechariah in these visions. He said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And if you look at verse 18, comes the next vision where Zechariah says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. 
Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. O Lord, give us understanding of your word. In Christ's name, thank you. You may be seated. All right, a lot here. Here we are shown the second and the third visions that Zechariah received. And the second one being in verses 18 to 21 with the horns and the craftsmen. And the third vision being in chapter 2. And again, remember, unlike a dream, a vision is one in which the person seeing it is conscious and can interact with what he sees. And if you notice closely, and I read the last part of the first vision, the oracle that was given there, the end of the first vision at the end of chapter or uh, from verses 14 uh, and on in chapter 1. I read that because it shows how closely tied that first vision is to these next two visions. For example, if you look in verse 15 of chapter 1, God speaks there of his anger against the nations, that implication that he's going to bring judgment. And that's exactly what we see in the second vision. Verses 18 to 21. And then in verse 16 of chapter 1, God speaks of rebuilding Jerusalem. And there the picture is of a a man with a measuring line, a a guy that's basically laying out the the structure and the distances in order to build is the idea there. And that's what we see in verse 16. And if you notice in the third vision, in the beginning, that vision opens with a man who has a measuring line that's stretched across Jerusalem. And then in verse 17 of chapter 1, God spoke of blessing Judah, that they would be overwhelmed with abundance and prosperity. And he says there he would again choose Jerusalem and show them favor. Well, that's the same idea that's expressed in the last part of the third vision in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. In fact, notice verse 12 of chapter 2, that same phrase appears, that he will again choose Jerusalem. And so all these things show that these first three visions are really all linked together. That the first vision introduces what the second and third visions then develop in more detail in showing how God's care and His vindication and eventually His presence with His people. God had said at the end of the first vision that He was angry with the nations who had oppressed and abused and scattered His people. In the second vision in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1, God shows how He's going to deal with those nations. In fact, notice in verse 18... Zechariah, he introduces this second vision with the words, Then I lifted my eyes and looked. And what appears to be happening, this is a phrase he mentions several times, is as, as Zechariah sees these things and he's pondering what these visions mean and what he is told about them, it's almost like he, he lowers his head to, to meditate and to ponder. And then something else comes on the scene and gets his attention. That's exactly what happens here is he lowers his head and then all of a sudden he, he looks up and he's appears to be a little bit startled because he says, then I looked and behold, four horns. It's like he's sitting there and contemplating and all of a sudden these horns show up in front of him. And he could recognize these were horns, but he asks, what are these? In the sense, not of what they are, but what do they mean? Why are they here? Why did these things appear before me? So the angel, he clarifies in the middle of verse 19, he says, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And with that, he would understand that uh, horns were used often in the Old Testament as a, as a metaphor, as a way to figuratively express or represent either nations or the power or strength of a person or a nation or their pride. Horn represented that. And there are many passages that describe the strength or power of a nation metaphorically as a horn. In Jeremiah 48, 25, it depicts the destruction of Moab by saying, The horn of Moab has been cut off and his arm broken. 
Or in Micah 4.13, God made a promise to Judah that Judah would become this great world power. And he says in Micah 4.13, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze that you may pulverize many peoples. And so this is idea here of a horn representing these nations. And verse 21, that is exactly what the interpreting angel describes there when he says, These are the horns which have scattered Judah. These are the nations that are represented, those who have oppressed and taken them out of the land and scattered them. Now, there are a multitude of interpretations as to what these horns are, they, they, what they represent, the nations that they represent. Some say they, the verb scattered here, being in the past tense, means that these represent past oppressors of Israel and Judah. Edom, Philistia, Ammon, Egypt, Assyria. Others say that while they don't refer to specific nations, what they are is they're a reference to generally the nations in general who have oppressed Israel. And the number four just means they've come from the four corners of the four directions on the compass. But notice in verses 19 and 21, the interpreting angel says three specific times, these are the horns which have scattered Israel. He's saying explicitly, these are the nations that have removed Israel from their land and scattered them into exile. So some say, well, then it must mean Assyria and Babylon. And there are four horns there because horns are attached to animals. And usually animals have two horns. And so there must be two beasts which represent Assyria and Babylon. And that's, he sees the, but he doesn't see beasts here. He just says, I see horns. I see horns. What are these horns for? There are horns here. Horns. Get the picture. There are no beasts. The focus is the four horns. That's the focus. Notice, too, there are four craftsmen. One for each horn. For the number four seems to be significant here. And also the verb tense here for scattered. In the Hebrew, it's in the perfect, which doesn't necessarily mean it's in the past. It means it's a completed or a characterizing action. And so here he's not speaking in the idea of time. Those who have scattered Israel. He's talking about characterization. Those who scatter Israel or Judah in this particular case. And so it seems best to understand these four horns represent four specific nations. And so when we think about this, think about what? What four nations might they refer to? What four nations were involved in the scattering and exile and oppression of people of Judah? Hmm, let me think. There was a prophet recently in their history who talked about four kingdoms. In fact, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar saw this statue of a, a dream of a statue that represented four kingdoms. And, and this prophet saw then a, in Daniel 7. Oh, I gave it away who it was. Um, he saw four beasts that represented the same four kingdoms. It's likely speaking of the four kingdoms of Daniel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those are, I believe, what these four horns represent. Now, these four horns aren't the only thing that Zechariah sees, right? They appear before him, but then also appears, or who emerges in this vision, are four craftsmen. The word craftsman here simply means an artisan, somebody who is skilled in a craft. And it's used in the Old Testament to refer to carpenters or to stonemasons or to metal workers, blacksmiths. And I think it is the blacksmith in view here, the worker of metal, given the task that they are given to do in dealing with these horns. And Zechariah recognizes them. He sees them and understands them as craftsmen. In verse 21, he doesn't ask who they are, but he asks, what, what do they come to do? What's the task that they have been given? As workers of metal, perhaps he saw them carrying hammers or other metal cutting tools. But notice, how does the interpreting angel answer him? He says, again, points 
Zechariah's attention to the horns. And then he says, these craftsmen have come to terrify, that is to frighten, to scare, to throw down those horns. These craftsmen have come, they haven't come to carve them into nice ivory carvings to put on the mantle as a nice display. No, these craftsmen have come in order to smash these horns, to destroy them. And again, notice, how many craftsmen do we have here? Four of them, four craftsmen. Thus, each horn has its own judge. Each horn, each nation has a hammer with its name written on it. And if these horns represent the kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, then the craftsmen would likely refer to the ones who were used to defeat them. In Babylon's case, it was Persia. In Persia's case, Greece. And in Rome's case, Daniel tells us in Daniel 2 that Rome will be crushed by the kingdom of Christ. And while the specific nations, all these nations would not be evident in Zechariah's time, of course, he knew of Babylon, he knew of Persia, he mentions Greece later in chapter 9, he would not know about Rome, but, but he would understand clearly the purpose and the uh, message of this second vision, that God will vindicate his people, that God will respond to the injustices committed against his people, that God will deal with any and all who bring harm to those whom he loves. Those who hammer God's people, God himself will hammer. That's the message. That's the idea. And again, it's a reminder to us, beloved, that God is watching his world. It's a reminder to us that God is taking note of what he sees, that he's paying attention to the evils committed against his children and that he will take action. And I know I've said this several times. In fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we we're looking at Zechariah 1, but it bears repeating. We have to keep reminding ourselves of this. Just a few months ago in Pakistan, a man named Shazad and his pregnant wife Shema were yanked from their home and were beaten mercilessly as their children watched. They had three young kids. And then they were tied to the back of a tractor and drug around for over half an hour. And then their bodies were stuffed in a brick kiln. What was their crime? Why did they receive such a terrible fate? Because they love Jesus. That's the only reason. Because they believe that God sent His Son to die for our sins. That's why. And this kind of thing happens all the time. And we see these things and we can be tempted, right? To waver in our faith, to wonder, God, did you see this? How could you let this happen? Are you going to do anything about it? Three little kids. Makes no sense. Do you see what happened here? And then we are reminded that for every horn, there's a blacksmith. For every oppressor, there is a hammer. Romans 12, 19, Paul said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is holy. He is just. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. And He will bring His craftsmen in His time. And again, we're reminded of that here. For now, we we need to pray. We need to pray that these evildoers would come to repentance. And we need to pray and come alongside our brothers and sisters who are suffering around this world. It's happening even now. We must pray for them. As we look to Zechariah's third vision, his third vision in chapter 2, we see that God will not only deal with his enemies, but also that he will defend his people. 
we see this particularly in verses 1 through 5. Notice in verse 1. Again, Zechariah seems steeped in thought. This vision of the horns and the craftsmen. And then something again grabs his attention. He says in verse 1, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line. Measuring line in his hand. So Zechariah, he then asks this man, say, hey, what? What are you doing? Where are you going? And the, the verb there indicates it's ongoing present action. So it appears he's in the process of, of measuring Jerusalem. And that's what he tells him. I'm measuring Jerusalem. Which again would hearken us back to the first vision. That the idea here is that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. But the question that many have is, well, who is this man with the measuring line? Who is this construction worker? Some think he is the interpreting angel. Others think that he is the young man spoken to in verse 4. Others think that he isn't a specific person, but that he symbolizes the people of Judah who are reconstructing the temple. Some think that, well, his identity isn't that significant. But others think it's very significant because they see him as the angel of the Lord. And that may be a possibility, but there's just not enough information here to be certain of that. I think it seems best to leave this man's identity unknown. For what's important here is not his identity, but what he's doing and why. And then things get interesting. Notice in verse 3, just after the measuring man responds to Zechariah's question, all of a sudden the interpreting angel who is with him, who's the one who gives these explanations of these dreams, all of a sudden he takes off. So he goes out, and then a second angel comes on the scene. Another messenger comes into the vision, and he speaks to Zechariah's interpreting angel. And he gives the interpreting angel some instruction of what to tell Zechariah. You you with me so far? You see what's happening here? It's four people involved here. Zechariah, the man with the measuring line who's out doing measurements, the interpreting angel who now goes out, and this other angel, the second messenger, who comes and gives the interpreting angel instructions for Zechariah. And hopefully all this, the reason I'm going into all this will make sense in a minute. Notice verse 4, the instruction that he gives. He says to this second angel, says to the interpreting angel, run, so go back, tell this young man, a reference to Zechariah, because again, remember, he's the one receiving all the explanations of what these visions mean. The second angel says, run and tell him that Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. Or literally, that Jerusalem will be open country. Jerusalem will be a plain without any walls around it. And at first blush, this might seem like a rather odd statement for Zechariah to give to the people of Judah. They have been beaten down, oppressed. So to think, hey, in the future you're going to be in a place where there won't be any walls around you. What? That doesn't sound very safe. It would seem odd that this was a good thing. But notice the reason that's given in verse 4. Jerusalem will not have walls around it. Why? Because there will be so many people and livestock and so much prosperity overflowing. The walls, it's just going to bust out. There's no way that they could be contained within any walls. That God will richly bless them. And added to that, notice verse 5. There will be no need for a wall because, and here's a key theme verse in this third vision. Because I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. Imagine that. This is an extraordinary promise. God is saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to be a wall of fire. Imagine a city protected by God himself. Think about that a minute. I mean, it reminds me of, remember Elisha? And the time when he was, uh, God was revealing to him the king of Aram and his, his battle plans against Israel. And so the king of Aram finds out about this guy, Elisha, who's, who's learning all these military secrets. And so he sends his army after Elisha. And they surround this town where he's at. I think it was 
Dotham or something like that. And so Elisha's there with his servant. You remember? And his servant's freaking out. Do you see these guys around? We're doomed, Elisha. It's over. He is fretting. He's anxious. Remember what Elisha did? Calm down. Go outside. Take another look. So remember, he went outside. It's early in the morning, and he looks. And it wasn't the Aramean army that he saw. Remember, he saw another army. He saw God's army surrounding that city. Army of horses and chariots of fire. It's kind of the same picture, I think, of when I think of this picture. God says, I myself, and the Hebrew's emphatic here, I myself will be a wall of fire around my people in Jerusalem. And I will be there, personally protecting her. And beloved, I have yet to hear of any army, human or otherwise, that has defeated God. Christ himself, by himself, took out nearly 200,000 Assyrians one night. And Christ himself will take out millions upon millions when he returns to battle God's enemies who will surround Jerusalem one day. And in that day, he will be their wall of fire. One man be a wall of fire. God himself in Jesus Christ. And, and notice here in verse 5, God not only will patrol the perimeter of the city, he will also permeate her interior. Verse 5, he says, and I will be the glory in her midst. Glory has this idea of, of presence, of, of God's majestic radiance. We saw a hint of that back in Haggai's second message when he spoke of God filling the temple with his glory. And as some look at this passage and these promises here that are made in this vision in particular, some say, well, this is all in reference to the church. That he's not speaking regarding ethnic Israel here, but spiritual Israel. A people that is to come. And if that's the case, I have to ask this question then. Well, what then in this text indicates that? What here in this passage tells us that the author, the original author, Zechariah, intended for his audience to understand that? Because again, he's speaking to Zechariah here. He's giving Zechariah a message for the people of Judah. The people of Judah to specifically encourage them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And he speaks about city called Jerusalem and his plans for her. And if it's not an actual city, what else would he be referring to in this context? He's speaking to Jews here about what is in store for them. He's not talking to the church explicitly here. If you look later at verse 11, we do see a reference to the nations, which is us. And we come in at that part and I'll, I'll get there in a moment. But we need to understand here that God is extending these promises to ethnic Israel. And while there is yet to be a time in Israel's history where we see this take place, where they are in peace and prosperity, protection from all their enemies, where God's glory is present in Jerusalem. We haven't seen that yet, right? Hasn't happened yet, but you know what? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It will happen one day. And it will happen in Jerusalem. It will happen in Jerusalem and Israel. Jerusalem and Israel on planet Earth. We'll see that later in more detail in Zechariah 14. Well, then some might say, well, Zechariah here, or God speaking to him, is telling of events that obviously didn't take place in his day, haven't taken place yet. So these are events that are in the far future relative to the people that Zechariah is speaking to. So really, then, these promises aren't really for them. They would say that, how could these have any relevance to these particular people in Zechariah's day? 
How could they really give them any hope if they weren't going to happen then, but in the far distant future? How could these promises hold any significance for them if it really wasn't about them? But you see, beloved, these visions were for them. They were for them. They were given to them to encourage them that, that the work they were doing had a purpose, that they were building more than they could see, that, that they were doing something where God had a great plan for that very same place, that place upon which their feet were standing. The soil of Jerusalem would become the soil of something very special. And remember, too, from their perspective, what was promised, they believe could have happened at any point in time, right? God didn't say when, only that what would happen. And I could say the same for us, couldn't I? Don't we await the same Messiah to return? Aren't we waiting for and looking for when he comes back to establish his kingdom? And we don't know when that's going to be. Our brother, the Apostle John, he wrote of visions that he was given in the book of Revelation that described those end times And yet, remember, John wrote that book nearly 2,000 years ago. Does that mean, then, that that his initial audience that he wrote the book to, the the early church that that read these visions, that, well, you know what, it had no meaning or significance for them, had no relevance? Does that mean that the book of Revelation holds no importance for all the Christians the last 2,000 years? Does that mean, then, if if Jesus doesn't come back for another 1,000 years, that the book of Revelation has no significance for us? We just get rid of it? Throw it out of our Bible? No, right? You should be shaking your heads on this one. No. Why? How is this relevant to us if it happens far in the future? Well, one, we don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen any moment. And two, these visions that John was given, these visions that Zechariah was given for the people of his day, are given to encourage and give us hope. Again, at any time, any time, he could return. At any time, he will establish his righteous reign on earth. He will destroy all his enemies. He will be our permanent protection against all evil. And we will see his glory. And listen, if you have turned to Christ in true repentance and genuine faith in him and confessed your sins to him, then you will be there too. Amen? Beloved, that gives... Me hope that motivates me for today, even if this is something far future. It may not be, it may be any moment, and we need to live that way. It, it moves us and should move us to speak to others of Him and of His soon return. Do these truths not give you strength to face today, knowing that today will not the things you're facing now aren't going to be there forever? Paul said in Titus two eleven. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. And what is it that would be the thing that would motivate us to live righteously and godly and sensibly in the present? Paul says this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. How do we live today? By looking to tomorrow, when our Messiah will return. That's the same exact message being given to these people in Zechariah's day. Are you looking for the blessed hope? Are you anxiously awaiting the glorious appearing of Christ? Amen. One of us is. 
This is what gives hope, beloved. This is what gives strength. This is what motivates us to press on to live for Christ, just as it did those in Zechariah's day. And to further reinforce that hope and that encouragement and that motivation, the rest of chapter 2, the rest of this third vision in Zechariah focuses on that day when Christ will dwell with his people. Okay, so far we've looked and what we've seen in these two visions is two things first. One, that God will deal with his enemies. And secondly, that God will defend his people. The third thing we see is that God will dwell with his people. But before we look at verses 6 to 13 in detail here, I, I want to take a closer look at that second messenger, that second angel that just kind of shows up out of the blue. Because his identity is actually of great importance in understanding and seeing the impact of the second half of the third vision here. If you look back at verses 4 and 5, Notice there seems to be something peculiar. This second angel, as he speaks from verse 4 and then verse 5, he gives an indication of who he might be. In verse 4, he, he tells the interpreting angel, he says, go run and tell that young man, tell Zechariah about Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 5, for I, declares the Lord, I will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. Hmm. The second messenger seems to be speaking not just for God, but as God. That's an important clue. We'll see it more clearly in verses 6 to 13. Now some believe though in verse 6 that it is Zechariah who begins to speak. But there's no indication here of a change in speaker. There's an indication of a change in audience but not speaker. If uh, Zechariah was now speaking instead of the second angel. I think we would have expect, expected him to say something like. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying. Or, or something like he did back in one one, or what the prophets would often do. But there's no transitional statement. It is the second messenger who continues to speak here in verse 6. And notice here he cries out, Ho there! It's hoy in Hebrew. It's this term that has an idea. Normally it was used as a warning, but it's one of strong emotion to get attention. The idea is, hey there, listen up! Listen up, you hear me? There's a, there's a firmness, there's a resolve. This interjection is followed by two related commands. Verse 6, he says, flee from the land of the north. Verse 7, he says, escape you who are living in Babylon. And so we see here there's a change in the audience. In verses 4 and 5, the audience is Zechariah. Or initially the interpreting angel was to give that message to Zechariah. In verse 6, the second angel turns his attention upon the exiles who are currently still in Babylon. And what he says to them is, hey, listen, flee, escape. Some say, well, this is a future group of Jews in a figurative expression of Babylon as the world. But I think we should see verses 6 through 9 as taking place in the present. Because again, we need to remember that these visions are rooted in a historical situation, right? They're rooted in historical events. Zechariah was commissioned to speak to the people of Judah and to encourage them specifically to continue and work on the task that God had given him in rebuilding the temple. So I think it makes sense to see verses 6 to 9 as, as focused on the exiles in Zechariah's time. Again, remember, not many of them came back from Babylon. We learn about 42,000 or so in the book of Ezra, Ezra, a new prophet. His brother was a prophet. You know, oh, anyway, things come out of my mouth that I just can't grab before my mind. Uh... In any case, about 42,000 came out of Babylon. 
There were many, many thousands more still in Babylon. Many did not return. Maybe they feared the journey. Maybe they had developed a somewhat comfortable life in Babylon. Maybe they were afraid of what was out in front of them. Or or perhaps they did not see a future for Judah. Or perhaps their love for Jerusalem had waned. We we don't know the reason. But in any case, the second angel says here, Flee Babylon. Come back. Return, escape, because I'm going to come in judgment against Babylon and those nations who have oppressed and harmed you. In verse 9, he says here, I will wave my hand over them. That's a a Hebrew idiom with this idea, expression of I'm going to take violent action. The motivation for that violent action on God's part is given in verse 8. In a well-known phrase, probably caught your eye as we were reading through it together. Notice there in verse 8, he says, After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That phrase, the apple of his eye, is likely a carryover from the King James translation. Uh, The Hebrew word there isn't a word for apple. Um, It's this statement that's often used, I think, given more sentimentality than probably it was intended in the original Hebrew. It's an expression we see many times in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32.10, Moses says that God, speaking of Israel, found him in the desert and encircled him and cared for him and guarded him as the apple of his eye. Or in Psalm 17.8, David prays, keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Proverbs 9.2, Solomon tells his son, Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. And there, that word that's translated apple actually is the word that means literally the little man. The little man of the eye. Referring to the pupil. The eye's pupil. And that is indeed one of the most sensitive parts of the body, right? That's one that we are most quick to protect when we fear that something might get poked in it. Because being poked in the eye is very annoying and very painful. In fact, I remember several years ago, I had LASIK done on my eyes to improve my vision. And I remember sitting in that chair, and there's this instrument that comes down, and it, it forms this suction on your eyeball to hold it still. Yeah, this was, it was a great experience. And then you're sitting there, you can't move, and you see this sharp instrument coming. Oh, this is going to be fun. Oh, yeah, right? Very uneasy feeling in that moment. And it was all I could do not to want to whack that instrument out of the way. But you know what? My eye was being held in place at that moment. did not seem like a wise thing to be swinging my arms around. But it was very uncomfortable as they were cutting. Oh, I'm going to stop. Anyway, so you get the point, right? Our eyes are a very sensitive thing on our bodies. And here this expression was used that this idea of the, the little man of the eye, the, the pupil, the most sensitive part. The word used here in Zechariah 2.8 actually is a, a different word than the little man. Uh, here he uses an Aramaic term for it, that means the gate. Uh, Aramaic was the language spoken in the day there. and this, So the idea here was the gate of the eye. But it refers to the same thing, the, the pupil, the opening. And so when he says here, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, God's not writing a love poem to Israel here. What he is saying is that when someone does harm to his people, it's like poking God in the eye. It's like hitting him at his most sensitive place, his tenderest point. Isaiah 63, 9 says that in all of his people's affliction, God was afflicted. That's an amazing and profound statement. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. It reminds me of what Jesus said to Saul on the Damascus road. Remember when he confronted them there and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? 
He took it personally. Shaman, Shazad, when they were being drugged around the dirt by that tractor, God took it personally. They were poking his eye. And believe me, God's eye is not an eye you want to poke. When someone does violence against God's people, when someone brings harm against you, when someone brings violence against you, God takes it personally. He takes it personally. God sees it as being done to him. And God will do something about it, just as he did to Babylon. He will deal with it. And that action, that promise to bring about judgment upon Israel's oppressors, the nations who have scattered them, the nations who have brought them harm, turns in verse 10 to this time of rejoicing. Verse 10, he says, sing for joy and be glad, he tells his people. In fact, these last four verses seems to to shift from the present to the future. They move to the day that God's people have been longing for for centuries, the return of Christ. And indeed, honestly, Christ's return and his presence has been the focus all along in this third vision. If you look back in verse 5, he said, I will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. In verse 10, behold, I am coming. Verse 11, I am dwelling or will dwell in your midst. Verse 12, the Lord will possess Judah as his portion. Now, Tim, you just said a minute ago, you said, Christ's return? This sounds like Yahweh, that, that the Lord is speaking here in these verses. Isn't he the one making these statements? How can you say it's referring to Christ's return? Ah, this brings us back to the question of that second angel, that second messenger. For in verse 5, that second angel seems to be speaking as God, as he says, I will be a wall of fire. In verse 8, this second angel speaks of himself as the instrument of God's judgment. Look there, he says, after glory or, or for God's glory, he has sent me to the nations, against the nations. And then in verse 9, he says, I will wave my hand over them. Again, the implication is in judgment. In verse 11, the second angel says, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become. And notice he doesn't say become the Lord's people or his people. He says become my people. Notice in the middle of verse 11, he says, I will dwell in your midst. And then look at what follows. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Something he repeats three different times. Now, how is it that Yahweh can send Yahweh? Hmm. You see what's going on here? We have Yahweh who is speaking in the first person. And yet there's another person speaking. This second angel. There's only one explanation for this, beloved. Christ is the one speaking here. Our Savior, our Lord, is the one speaking here. He is the second angel. He is that second messenger. And just as he appeared in the first vision as the angel of the Lord to intercede on behalf of his people and to ask for compassion to be shown to them, here in the third vision, he appears again to declare that he will defend that he will prosper, that he will protect, that he will dwell with his people. This this is cool. This is our Savior speaking here, our Lord who is talking, the one who came, became a man and came to die for us, to die for our sins. He's foretelling of a time here, the time, this is what, 2,500 years ago. He's speaking to these people and telling them of a time when he's coming back. Coming back to his people, coming back for Israel. 
One day the people of Israel will look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourn, as Zechariah says later, chapter 12. Chapter 13, Zechariah indicates that there will come a day when the Jews will turn to Christ in repentance and faith and that Christ will save them and that Christ will restore them and that Christ will return to them. And here in Zechariah, he wants them to look ahead to that future day. And he wants them to look ahead and rejoice because the work that they were doing as they were digging in the soil surrounding the temple, as they were carving out the rocks to put in place in the temple, as they were actually doing the construction, he wanted them to know and be assured that that one day in the future, the Messiah will reign right from this spot. Right here. He will be here. I will be here, Christ says. This is a message we can rejoice in too, right? We can be happy for the people of Israel and what God has planned for them. We can rejoice in His promises to them. We can be happy for what God has planned and His purposes. And we can celebrate God's grace and compassion and mercy and faithfulness that He shows. He made a covenant with these people thousands of years ago. A promise. And despite all that has happened, despite all the rejection and rebellion, He's going to keep that promise. And brothers and sisters, we can rejoice for one more reason. Look at verse 11. Again, Christ our Savior is speaking here, and He says, Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become My people. Many nations. That's us! We're in this prophecy! Believe that? You believe that? It's amazing! Calvary Bible Church, believers in Jesus Christ, are in this Old Testament book. He's speaking about us. If you have... Confess your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your trust in Him. Then He's talking about you here. You're part of those many nations. We will be with Christ. We will dwell, think about this, in peace and prosperity with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Together. We will be protected by Christ. We will be personally cared for by Him. We will walk with Jesus. It's going to happen. And though that day may seem... So far off right now, let the Lord, through this text, bring it near to you. Because that's what He's doing here. You may be having problems with your kids or and your family or your finances or your health or the health of somebody you care about or, or how you're being treated on the job or difficulties. In your, there's all kinds of things. Church budget problems. All kinds of things face us and confront us. All kinds of difficulties. How do you endure? How do you have faith? How do you find strength? How do you live for Christ in the midst of that? How do you rejoice in the midst of the trials of this life? By remembering what Christ spoke here to his people. The same message he speaks to us. Sing for joy, O Christian. For I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we can't speak of it and talk about it enough. uh, Your return. Lord, a return you've been promising for millennia. And we know that that you delay in order to bring repentance and allow for people to repent. Lord, for the elect to come to know you. We know, Lord, that you allow and bring circumstances in our lives, sometimes very hard ones. I, I can't imagine, Lord, this dear family and what they went through. Father, you bring 
these many things, but you also bring us hope and encouragement that you will return. Lord, that any who harm your people, they, they're poking you in the eye, that you will respond. Lord, we thank you for these encouraging words that, that Christ our Lord is returning and he will reign on this planet from that very place where 2,500 years ago, Zechariah and and the people of Judah were building a, a building. Lord, we look forward to that day with great anticipation and to see our King. We pray in His name. Amen.